Father, we do thank you for this time together. We thank you for the grace that we have in Christ and the gift that we have in the mercy that you've shown to your people at such great cost. Father, I pray that as we continue to go through these little sections in the, in the Gospels, that you would impress upon us um, the need that we have to display the mercy we've been given. And we pray that we would start with each other and that it would flow out to outsiders who are um, desperately in need of mercy, as, as we are. Help us to reflect you rightly and the way we act and not just the way we talk. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We are, again, uh, taking some time off uh, from going through a book in order to just do some, some scattershot, a little bit of snippets of the... Um, of the, of the Gospels. And so today we're going to look at two narratives. It's starting in Luke 18, verse 35. Um, and what I'd like to do this morning is to look at two, two narratives. Uh, and my contention is that these two are related. That Luke put them together, even though there's a chapter break between them, that Luke put them together for a purpose. And so I want to start... Um, start with the blind man, the blind beggar in, in verse 35. Let's just read it real quick. As he, who's he? Jesus, yes, because we're talking about Jesus in the Gospels. All right. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd go, going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. All right. Let's start with just the scenery. Where is this taking place? In Jericho, where, where did you say? On the way to Jericho. Why is he going to Jericho? Do we know? Does it say immediately in this passage? That's one of our second questions in a one-to-one. -one. What questions come up that aren't immediately addressed in the passage? Do we know why he's going to Jericho? Apparently there are no walls left. Because Joshua fit the battle. Um, there may be a museum thing going on there. He walked 17 miles in Jericho to see all the museums. Um, why is he going to Jericho? Look at the passage immediately preceding this one. What does it say? See, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is 
truth about the Son of Man, but the prophets will be accomplished. What is he talking about? His eventual death. He's talking about the cross, right? He is heading toward the cross here by way of Jericho going to Jerusalem. And it says as he drew near to Jericho, as, he, as he's coming into Jericho, what's going on? What's the scenery? There's a large crowd on either side of the road. Why would they be there on the other side of the road? He hadn't gotten to town yet. Cultural insight. In the Middle East, it is a common sign of honor when a guest is coming in or a visitor is coming in, a dignitary or whatever, for the people, the villagers, to honor them, they go out to them before they get to the town. Right? It's a big thing. They go out and it's this welcome, welcome, welcome thing. And depending, depending on how important the person is, they go out farther. <laughs> it's a distance thing. If they meet you just outside of town, well, okay, whatever. But if they're way out, then that's a big deal. So that's the scene here. The villagers know, get word that Jesus is coming into Jericho. And so they go out to him to welcome him to, 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 as an honor for their town to display their hospitality to this famous rabbi. Right? What's the problem? While they're welcoming him, while they're honoring him, what's going on? A beggar. You mean the authorities haven't cleared the benches? He's making this loud plea. First of all, how do they introduce him? How do they introduce him? How do they identify him to the beggar? What's going on, he says? Jesus of Nazareth. Right? Well, that makes sense. That's where he's from. It's kind of how he's known. Jesus of Nazareth. Aren't they all traveling to Jerusalem? They were Passover too? They were like all coming in since Passover. I mean, they were pilgriming in. That's part of it too. There are probably some who are following him from Galilee. That's, that's probably going on as well, which may have attracted the people from Jericho saying, oh, somebody's coming. The dust up, I guess, in the distance. So you have some of that. Um, but, but the majority of people, I think it's assumed here, w would have come from Jericho. Um, so the idea is this, this honor, this welcome of the town of Jesus would also include um, a banquet they would provide. Somebody would host a banquet in honor of Jesus, the famous rabbi who's coming into town. Um, they would expect him to stay the night, so they would prepare lodging suitable for his status. Uh, it's uh, rep reported in the Talmud that when a king and his servants would come to town, uh, the king would be honored by staying at a place commensurate with his status, and then the servants would be shuffled off into places commensurate with their status. So, very honor-shame kind of thing going on. Who's going to host him? I'm honored to have you under my house. This is a big deal for them. They're looking forward to this, to display this honor to him. So there's, there's, they're anticipating a banquet, a feast for him, and uh, to host him for the evening. And they call him, they identify to the beggar, uh, that he is Jesus of, of Nazareth. What does the beggar call him? Sorry? 
a different name, which is Son of David. Now, in the Gospels, that title, calling Jesus Son of David, is used twice. And we've gone through one of them already in our little short series. Uh, the Canaanite woman calls Jesus Son of David. A Gentile woman calls Jesus Messiah, Son of David. This is the second time. This blind beggar, Son of David. It's a messianic term he's using. And it kind of, the way this is set up in Luke's Gospel, it, it sets up bookends leading up to and through the Passion. Because you have here the beggar calling him Son of David, and at the very end of the scene, you see the centurion at the foot of the cross saying, surely this was the Son of God. So you have these names setting up kind of some loose bookends to the, to the Passion scene. So it's kind of, a, kind of a, a literary device he's using as well, bookending what Jesus is coming to do. What does the crowd do when he starts yelling out, Son of David? Try to silence him. Um, yeah, they're trying to honor. Look at us; we're honoring you. Also, his total status—he's not going to be considered clean. Well, there's there's the cleanliness issue. He is speaking to this guest of honor. Right, right. That's true. Uh, he would not be exactly the most um, PR savvy person to represent the town, being that loud. Um, Luke might just being nice here, be being night be being might just he might be writing nicely. I don't know. He's being nice here. <laughs> he might could. Uh, in Mark's gospel, this story, the beggar is called Bartimaeus. And interestingly enough, Bartimaeus can be translated son of filth. So the son of filth is calling out to the son of David. Is is the way that. Um, you see that happening here. Um, and Mark records the crowd being a little bit more harsh with the beggar than what Luke does. He, he says in his gospel that they said, shut your mouth. Very aggressive. Uh, very, uh, I don't know, would you call that marginalization? <laughs> shut your mouth. So what is the beggar's response to this? He cries out all the more. He cries out all the more. Um, and does Jesus reply to his crying out all the more? What does he say? Who? He commands to the crowd, the people that were trying to shut him up, bring this guy to me. Now, think him to be brought. Think think about the what's being conveyed there. This crowd who is telling him, according to Mark, shut your mouth, um, has now been commanded, that's the word you use, commanded by Jesus to bring him in the presence of a king, be the servants and bring me this guest. And who's the guest? Blind Bartimaeus. How are they going to respond to that? I mean, we've just told the guy to shut up so that we're honored and you're honored. And you're humbling us 
by making us grab this filthy... Passover's coming. By making us grab this filthy beggar and bring him to you. Uh, they become servants of the king to bring a guest into his presence. And we don't know how they react just yet. I mean, they do it, right? But we're still waiting to see what's going to happen here. Yeah. Well, I, it's assumed that they, they've fallen. But you're right. It doesn't, it's not specifically spelled out. He was blind. So I would assume he would have to be led somehow to him. Jesus was about to rebuke him for speaking out. So, That's true, too. Like, oh, yeah, he's going to get it. Yeah. And they bring him, and then Jesus is like, you know. And he's like, what? What does he say to him? What do you want me to do for you? What kind of question is that? I don't know. Uh, he's blind. <laughs> what, what kind of question is that? What do you want me to do for you? It's, it's almost a question of faith. How much do you think I can do for you? Okay, do you think I can heal you? Do you believe I can heal you? That's a good point. What's that? He's trying to draw that out so that they see. To draw out his faith? Is what, yeah? Jesus knows already, but he's putting on a public display. Sure. I was just going to say, it shows, it's like, what do you believe I can do? What do you believe I can do? Okay. So there's a display. He's calling for a display of faith. What does this guy do for a living? Begs. He begs. And not only does he beg, but in Middle Eastern culture, he actually is considered a member of the community, in effect providing a service to the community for those who are pious. Right? The pious people, in fact, when he, when he would beg, traditionally, he would beg this way, give to God. I'm a great opportunity for you to give to God. I'm right here. And if they give... Whatever amount, they are guaranteed that he will stand up and proclaim among everybody in the town what a noble person, the most noble person that he has ever been exposed to because of the generosity, the compassion, and the mercy that the almsgiver has shown to the beggar. That's a service that he provides to um, give recognition to the pious. That's, the cult. That's his job. Now, the job has certain qualifications. What would those be? You've got to be handicapped in some way. A guy without an arm or a leg, he might make a good living at this. Blind guy, it's gold. Definite, in need, clearly going to be proclaimed as noble. It's, I mean, it's a, great, it's a great gig for this guy. He's identified by it. The blind beggar. That's his identity. So what's Jesus asking him? What do you want me to do for you? Take away his job. What's going to happen if he heals him? His identity's going to change. His identity will change. His livelihood will change. Is he educated? Probably not. Is he skilled? Most likely no. It's all going to change. And providing for himself is going to be much more difficult. He won't be on the public system anymore. He's going to have to work. 
because there's no way that he will meet the qualifications that the culture has set up for him to simply obtain money by sitting there. Right? He's gonna, it's, everything's going to change. And that's going to be hard. It's a test. How much do you want from me? Because it changes everything. Another thought I had on this is that many times there's pride in our afflictions. We get to wear them and display them. And he's going to have to give that up. When it's taken away, he can't say, oh, I'm blind. Well, no, you're not. So there's several things going on here. And how does he respond? How does this blind beggar respond? He moves from have mercy on me, which is very general. It's not the same word in Greek as we see with the, the tax collector, um, which says, be propitious to me as he beats his chest in the, in the, in the temple. Uh, be, make that sacrifice apply to me. The blind beggar is not using the same word. He's just, it's a general have mercy on me. But he moves from have mercy on me to a very specific request, right? Let me receive my sight. And what does Jesus say to him? What does Jesus say to him? What, what, his faith has made him well. What faith? What faith has he displayed? He's in front of a crowd of people. He has called out to Jesus. They tried to silence him. And then Jesus asks him, what do you want? And he says, let me recover my sight. Let me give up the life I now have to get from you what I need. Isn't that what he's saying? He, he recognizes him, he glorifies him as son of David. He recognizes rightly who he is. And whenever he comes to him, he says, Lord, I want to receive my sight. Not only who he is, but he's my Lord. Um, and he believes that Jesus has compassion on the poor, which includes him. And he believes, he draws out, Jesus in the questioning, draws out that he has power to heal him. Divine power to heal him. Um, and so he does. What's the man's response when he's healed? What does he do immediately? Worships. He worships. He glorifies God. He praises God for what's been done to him. He recognizes that God is the source of Jesus' power to heal. What does a crowd do? Shut your mouth. What do they do now? They also pray. They also pray. And why wouldn't they? I mean, this guy's been oppressed. He's marginalized. Jesus wanted to show him a little mercy. That's a good thing, right? I mean, we see that in Scripture a lot, right? God is the hero, the champion of the oppressed. We expect that. That's certainly consistent with their understanding. Um, Jesus offers special grace to the oppressed and the crowd accepts it and rejoices. And, and we expect that. The Bible affirms that God is the champion of the oppressed and the downtrodden. Solomon recalls it for us this way. Again, I saw 
all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. That's in Ecclesiastes 4. So Solomon draws out another vanity of vanities. It's this constant oppression of people who are weaker in society and in, the, in humanity. Mary, in what's called the, the Magnificent, Luke 1, 52, says, He, God, has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. Clearly, God champions the oppressed. And so they're responding to that in a very um, consistent way. That's a good thing. So what would Jesus do when he meets an oppressor? Let's look at chapter 19. He entered Jericho. He was drawing near. Now he's entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Where are we in the story? Location. He's in Jericho. What is he? What are his plans in Jericho? What does it say? Passing through. But I thought we were going to have a banquet. He's going to stay the night. The town was going to be honored. He's passing through. Why is he passing through? He's going to Jerusalem. He has an appointment there. Right? He's passing through Jericho. Now, if you are a town, and it's a, it's a sign of honor for you to have a guest, like a famous rabbi, to come through, and you're, you're already prepared culturally to prepare a banquet, and to, to, to house him for the night, and say, this is the house where that famous rabbi stayed in my town, Jericho. And he's just passing through. What would be the demeanor, you think? What would be the response of the people? You think they'd be, eh, we're excited about that. Glad he was able to stop by the Quickie Mart, get a Coke, and go on. Well, yeah, I think so. Be pretty let down. The, um, the economic boon, probably not going to be as much if he doesn't have the banquet there. 
they're very disappointed. I mean, no doubt that they're very disappointed. Um, and so he's just passing through, and then we get this appearance of this guy, this wee little man, this wee little man was he. What's going on here? What's going on here? Is this an oppressed guy? Is this a downtrodden? This is the one percenter, right? Chief tax collector. Chief tax collector. I didn't know they were They are. They're, they're always chiefs in government. <laughs> <laughs> they always have chiefs. And was rich. Now, what's a tax collector at this time? Is he like, you know, sitting around denying conservative causes their, their benefit as a 501c3? Or what is he doing? What is he doing? What's going on here? He's the IRS of that time. He's working for Rome. But he's working for Rome. He's a Jewish man who's bought a tax... It was tax farming is what they did at the time. They'd get local people to, to be um, consultants to get taxes from the people, their own people, to give them to Rome. And so he'd buy into this franchise, and apparently very good at it because he's a chief guy, so he's got a lot of minions. My minions. And so he has people working for him to collect the um, minimum amount that Rome said it needed from this region, from his franchise area. His, you know, they had an agreement. Um, and what amount that would be changed depending on the needs of the government. Now, the interesting thing is, we, we know from Jewish records, that the um, statutes that would change, many times only the tax collectors knew the amount they were supposed to collect. So what does that lend itself to? Let's just throw an extra percent out here. Brothers got to eat, right? So it leads, it lends itself to fraud. To saying, oh, no, 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 you, you owe 55% <laughs> on your father's estate. Gouging, it's crazy. Um, when maybe the statute said 40. So there's a real easy way for them to pad their, 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 their accounts. And Rome only knows what they get. Did he meet his quota? They don't care about the other thing. They just want their money. So there's not really an oversight committee. They're not pulled, pulled, uh, pulled before congressional uh, testimony. None of that goes on. Just get us the money. So in order to have that kind of business, what kind of people would you have to have around you? A strong arm of the law. Strong arm. I hereby deputize you th thug number one. <laughs> right? So they're going to break kneecaps to get tax money because that's just the way it generally goes. Um, and you have a tax collector who's surrounded by sinners. And so the term of tax collectors and sinners, was they were just always paired together. That's just the way that, the, culturally, that that worked. All right. He's rich. So clearly, the implication is he's been taking um, advantage of this special knowledge he has from Rome at the expense of his own people. But for some reason, he wants to see Jesus. Why can't he? He's a wee little man, a wee little man was he, so 
It's a big crowd. It's also an easy tax collector center. People probably don't like a tax collector. Well, people don't, like him. people don't like him. If a man of honor, who may have been a little shorter than most, wants to see something, and he's a rich guy, so if you're rich in that culture, it's like you've got, you're already holy because, you know, it's Father Abraham. And so he wants to see Jesus. If he were an honored man, a respected man, what would have happened? They'd have let him right through. They'd have parted like the Red Sea and let this man through. It's a sign of honor. Unless you're despised. In fact, culturally, that's exactly what would have happened. They would have had to have let him through just because of the, the way the system is set up and the honor-shame deal. But if you're despised, what happens? He can't see because of the crowd. And if you're in a hostile environment, they won't let him in. Can things progress a little bit? If there's a sense in which you've been cheated and the whole town has been cheated and really nobody can see where you are anyway because you're doing this as you're walking around, what can happen? Accidents can happen, can't they? Oops, my knife accidentally shoved into your back. Oops. So it's kind of dangerous for the wee little man. And so he feels the hostility of the crowd Nah, I don't think I'm going to mix with those people. So what does he do? He climbs a tree. He climbs a tree. What does it say? He ran ahead and climbed a tree. What kind of tree? Why would Luke put that detail in there? Why does it matter that it's a sycamore tree? They can grow 30 or 40 feet tall. They can grow 30 or 40 feet tall. <laughs> The tree is right there today. You can pay $20 to go touch Zacchaeus' sycamore tree. The, um, well, as soon as the coin of the coffer rings, the soul from, I don't know. Anyway, uh, so you have this detail of a sycamore tree. Sycamore trees have low branches. They're very leafy, big leaves. Uh, he runs ahead to get away from the crowd, and he climbs a tree. If you're a rich guy in the Middle East, we've talked about this before, how's that whole running thing in public? How's that viewed? Yeah, no. We don't do that. He does it, and he does it ahead of everybody so as not to be seen running. If running is bad, how about climbing a tree in a dress? <laughs> That's all kinds of bad there. All kinds of shame going on there. But he does it to hide from the crowd. The hostility is there. Where would this tree be located? Side of the road. Side of the road. In town, outside of town? Outside. outside of town. In fact, it was culturally not allowed for a sycamore tree, or any tree really, to be grown inside the town. Outside the town, the sycamore was, was by law, Jewish law, it had to be a certain number of uh, feet away, is enough to oh, from the wall so that people can climb the tree, get over the wall, that kind of thing. So, there, so it's way out on the other side of town is the implication here. Why would that be significant? Jesus already passed through the town. He's already passed through the town. So when he says run ahead, he's meaning run ahead. Already through the other side of town, he's up in the tree hiding. Waiting. 
and waiting because Jesus already indicated, I'm not stopping. I'm passing through. All right. Um, what happens? He's passing through, declining the hospitality, the hospitality of the people who normally prepare this feast and have a place for him to stay. But what, is, what happens? He goes through the other side, and what happens? He looks up and talks to him. He looks... I'm hiding. It's like you're playing hide-and-seek as a kid, and your older brother goes... So t- and, and, and who's not it, by the way. Uh, your older brother goes, So, Kevin, what's going on? And I'm you know, behind the car, whatever. <laughs> My cousin, I had, a, I had an uncle that was three years older than me. We'd play out in the country. And he would, you know, the other little ones would be looking for me. And he'd start talking to me wherever I was. It drove me nuts because he'd always give me away. And it's like, he outs him. He's hiding in the tree. And he looks up and says, what does he say? He calls him by name. How in the world? How could he call him by name? He didn't even call the blind beggar by name. He calls him by name. How would he know his name? Sunday school answer is? He's Jesus. A natural explanation may be, possibly, that the reputation of this guy was conveyed to Jesus on the way. You know, oh, there's that tax collector. Well, who's that? You know, whatever. I mean, it could be that. Also, uh, could be that he's, you know, God in the flesh, so we have that, you know, advantage there. He calls him by name, and if Jesus sees him and calls him by name, what does that mean for him? Who else can see him? Everyone. Everyone. And he's treed. <laughs> he's stuck. A hostile crowd now has public enemy number one up in the tree. <laughs> outside of town. Either. Outside of town. And they're anonymous. I mean, they probably had a lot of things they wanted to say to this guy. But it's usually as he's saying, no, I need, I need 55% on your you know, father's estate. And, and it's face to face. And so if they insult him there, he's just going to Did I say 55? I meant 60 Right? But not out here on the edge of town where bodies are lost. They're all anonymous. And so it doesn't say this, but the hostility could be increasing because now there's blood in the water. They got this guy. So maybe some things start being hurled out. Maybe some names are being called that they've been waiting just to unload on this guy for a while. Could be. We don't, we're not given that. I know. I, I, am, I am at heart a cynic. I am, I am at heart a cynic. So. Because it's such a shame and honor of society. Yeah. Where he is and the position he's in at that moment is a very shameful Look at him well, yeah. You put some doubt in the jury. <laughs> <laughs> so being in the tree alone is a shameful, maybe there's some ridicule. Look at him up in the tree. I mean, maybe some of that. Sure. We don't know. Plus he has no protection. There could, so. maybe, there could. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying there is. <laughs> Certainly there's hostility. <laughs> you feel well, like you <laughs> Huh? I never feel hostility. He also doesn't know 
why Jesus is calling him either. So, right. I mean, I would think, like, if I'm up in a tree and I know I've done all these terrible things, and then Jesus is like, hey, and you're like, oh my gosh. Right. I don't want to talk. Like, what would the crowd expect from Jesus at this point? They might be getting excited. Blood in the water. Here it comes. He's going to get it. You're a thug. You're a son of a thug. <laughs> you have robbed these good people of Jericho who have come out to greet me and honor me and do all this stuff. You've robbed them. You have no place among us. If you quit your job, if you go to Jerusalem, get cleansed at the temple, come back and really try to follow the law, maybe in a year or so I'll come back and congratulate you on, on finally doing what you needed to do from the beginning as a good Jew. I mean, isn't that, isn't that what they would expect? I mean, at this point, hadn't he already called the Pharisees uh, you know, sons of the devil and... Yeah, he's how to win friends, influence people. What's going on with that, that whole thing? But I mean, he, he's he's addressed other people. He has in a very harsh way. He has again, Jesus meek and mild, right? They they probably know some of this. The stories of him going against the ruling class on some of those things may have may have been a thing. So you have all this stuff possibly going on. Yes, possibly, um, but it's not beyond. I know that unlike the beggar, he doesn't ask him to get out of the tree before telling him he wants to go to his house. Right. He tells him immediately, as almost to say to the crowd, no, shut up, I'm not going to, you know. Maybe. Maybe. He says, come down. It's at, th at that point, we don't know what he's going to say. The crowd doesn't know what he's going to say. Does he say what they expect? No. He also, Jesus talks to him first. Mm -hmm. Zacchaeus doesn't cry out like the beggar cried out. Zacchaeus says he's he hiding. Knows he's not he doesn't want to speak, and Jesus speaks to him first, not like Bartimaeus. Jesus speaks to him first. So you have the expectation of the crowd. They, they supported Jesus whenever he healed the oppressed, like the blind man. And his address to Zacchaeus confirms um, maybe they're expecting to hear from him confirming that their hatred of Zacchaeus is justified. That would certainly get the crowd happy. But he says something else. He was passing through. Now what does he say? Staying at your house. I'm staying at your house today, today. I'm saying, I must. I must. Stay at your house. He's already outside of town. He's already outside. He's got to turn around and go back. If he had GPS, do a U-turn. At the, he's got to go back. He's no longer passing through anymore either. He's not passing through anymore, and he is um, positioning self himself to be honored in the house of a tax collector, not the five-star. Jericho Hilton, but the house of a tax collector. Now, if you have a sinner like the tax collector, culturally, his family would be viewed as unclean. The house in which he stayed would be unclean. The bed that Jesus will probably sleep on is considered unclean. What holy rabbi would do this right before Passover? Jesus. What would he have to do? Always a good answer in Sunday school. What would he have to do? What would he have to do to get ready for Passover? To be clean? 
sacrifice and wait it out. There's got to be a time frame there. I, I think it was a week. A sacrifice has to be made. Why would you set yourself up for that extra problem when we're so close to Passover? What if you don't make it in time? What if you can't take Passover because you're visiting it with this joker? What are you doing? People are probably pretty confused as well. You think Zacchaeus was pretty confused? I said people around him. People around him were confused? I think they were, they were certainly confused. Um, remember how in the first story with the blind beggar, the crowd was hostile, but then showed their approval of Jesus' mercy to this oppressed man. We have similar hostility, more hostility, being shown here. How, when Jesus shows mercy to this oppressor, how do they react? What do they say? It says they grumbled. He, he has gone in, as a guest in the house of a sinner. They grumbled. It's so Numbers-esque, isn't it? They grumbled. Because he shows this guy mercy, they don't praise God. They grumble. He's gone in the house of a sinner. The sentence, he has gone, leads us to believe that he... This was going on after he had already entered Zacchaeus' house, in which a banquet would have been prepared. All right, Zacchaeus would have prepared a banquet. And so the stuff that happens after this, the smart guys seem to think happened after he's in Zacchaeus' house. Um, so Jesus, rather than placate their hatred of this guy, does what? Who are they grumbling against now? He has taken the hostility against Zacchaeus onto himself. Right? Is that what he's done? Looking toward Jerusalem. All right. What happens? Zacchaeus stands, presumably at this feast, and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Now, I'll just clue you in. There's no way financially he could do this. And they don't expect him to. This is a, a um, hyperbole. It's an exaggeration that is expected in the culture. If he said exactly... I made 13% off of every transaction I plan on, re on returning, you know, that. They'd say, oh, he's probably going to just gouge us even more. But by stating it in such an overly, over-the-top, generous way, it displays culturally this is a transformed heart. That, that's, he's really going to do this. He's going to do something. They expect that, and that's what's going on. Did we see any radical... We talked about this last week. Did we see any radical changes by the wounded man in the story of the Good Samaritan? We weren't given that, were we? He said, if I come back, I'll pay whatever the difference is. 
What about the, the prodigal son? The day after the feast, do we, are we given the prodigal's demeanor and how he acted? The, the older son, did we ever find out if he went into the feast, enjoyed the restoration of the mercy of his father? No, we're not given any of that. Here, we are given the radical response of someone who has received costly mercy. He took the hostility of the crowd on himself. He didn't have to do that. And the response from Zacchaeus, did anybody tell Zacchaeus to do this? Hey, one of the disciples came up to him, probably Peter. We, we know you've received this grace from Christ, this costly grace from him. And here's, here's our pamphlet of what we expect if you're part of our organization. It's the ten rules that we tend to follow. And part of that is being over-the-top generous with the stuff you've defrauded everybody with. So, knock yourself out. Does anybody tell him to do this? Yeah? Well, it doesn't say. I was wondering if maybe this is sort of an early example of the, if, if your brother sins, rebuke them in private first. Because hmm. we don't know if Jesus said anything to Zechariah while they're walking in and having the feast. And, you know, mm -hmm. Um... We're not told that he, he was yeah. said anything. I think the implication is this is something that was not told to him. Okay. And, that, and that he responds in a way that is um, from the heart, right? This is a generous thing. It's a repentance. Um, and what does Jesus say in response to what he says? Salvation has come. Salvation has come to the house that I'm sleeping in now. And the salvation has come to this house. Um, did he say salvation has come to this house after restitution is made? No. no. Give it a couple of years, we'll see how it works out? No. He says salvation has come to the house based on the expression of Zacchaeus of, I've got to make this right. I want to show, I want to display the mercy that I've been given the costly love that I've been given by Jesus and taking hostility and, and acknowledging me when I'm trying to hide, he found me. And in response to that, I want to... Now, isn't it, isn't it uh, convenient if you're having a restitution, then you're saved thing? It's done, and you're done. In this situation, is Zacchaeus ever done? No. The rest of his life is spent, is poured out, displaying the mercy and the love of Jesus that's been shown to him. The rest of his life is. Today salvation has come to this house. Um, who brought it? There's, a, yeah, there's twofold to that sentence. I was thinking salvation for the man, but then also Christ, who is salvation, has come to the yeah, yeah, it's good. It came through Jesus shifting the hostility from Zacchaeus to himself. It also came immediately not after restitution had been made. It had just been promised. So we have this lifelong commitment, public commitment, to be merciful as Jesus was merciful to him. What else does he say? So the Son of Man came to seek and to save. What does he say about Zacchaeus? He also is a son of Abraham. Now, why would he need to say that? They're trying to isolate him as not really a Jew. Not really a son of Abraham. 
He's a he's a He's betrayed us. He's betrayed Abraham's children by what he's done. And yet here he is, going in a way that he doesn't know where he's going. Following the footsteps of Abraham, not knowing where they're going to lead, he just knows that he needs to be generous and to give of himself and sacrifice uh, at great cost, like Jesus has done and will do for him. The town had ostracized Zacchaeus. Jesus affirms that he's accepted in the eyes of God, regardless of how the community reacts. And then he says something about himself. He reaffirms his mission, which is to seek, possibly save, potentially have Open the door for. <laughs> go nine steps, you come, one. Seek and save the lost. Seek and save the oppressed lost. Seek and save the beggar lost. Seek and save those that we think should be saved. The lost. Including those who are oppressors. Including Saul of Tarsus. Right? He doesn't modify it. He doesn't limit it. It's, it's a universally um, applicable, whether or not it's effective, we can talk about that later, but it certainly is sufficient for all of those who would repent and believe. Kevin, I find this, uh, we were talking about the Truth Project, and I think it was either the first or the second week how he said, um, he was talking about Jesus, how Jesus has pity on everyone. And we don't need to wage war, the cosmic battle back and forth, but have pity on. And that's exactly what Christ does here. Mm -hmm. He doesn't bring up the, the beggar and the underdog and then wage war against the, the rich or the sinner. Mm -hmm. He has pity on both, regardless right. of their stature. Right. No pun intended, regardless of stature. Um, he is the savior of the oppressed and the oppressor. And he is headed to Jerusalem to accomplish redemption for both types of lost. Yeah, you can see how the people reacted to the, the laws of the social justice gospel were just as true back then. They oh, absolutely. Save the poor, the, the destitute, whatever, but when it comes to rich people or politicians or whatever, like, they should all die and go to hell, like, the worst people. We should, um, rhyme, rhyme. Definitely a, an, a, a um, again, this is why I love the way the Gospels are set up, because they challenge uh, cultural uh, biases of who Jesus is and what he's done. The lost, he just leaves it wide open. And so should we. And that's easier said than done sometimes. Any other statements? I know we ran a little long, odd, since we started so early. I think the context is interesting that he immediately addresses the fact that they were all grumbling after 
Confirming that Zacchaeus has salvation, he immediately proceeds to the parable about the, the servants and who did well done and mm-hmm. who thought he was a severe mm-hmm. master. Yeah. So he's saying your perception of me is... And that's where we're going next week. No, no, it's okay. That's a, I was going to say it, but you did it for me. That's good. Go ahead. He will rebuke people if they need it. He doesn't directly rebuke the crowd, but sort of suddenly says he is also, you know, your fellow right. Jew. So. Right. You want to honor me? Yeah. Honor him. Because he's a son of Abraham too. Right. Good. Good. All right. Well, let me pray. And we'll be dismissed. Father, it's such a gift that you've given us, your revelation in Christ, and that it's recorded for us by holy men taught by the Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that we would be compelled and driven to reflect in our own lives the great mercy that we've been given by Christ. That we wouldn't grumble if we're in a situation where we're around people that we don't necessarily think should be saved. But that instead we would see the mission of Christ is is the proclamation of the church that He came to seek and save the lost. And He's still doing it. He's done it with us. We pray that He continues to do it with those around us. And that by your mercy and by your grace, you would allow us the privilege of being effective and um, accurate proclaimers of His great mercy. Would you um, open our eyes and our hearts as we go into the next service, as Philip begins his series through the Beatitudes. And I, I pray that, um, that we would be challenged and encouraged and leave this place praising God for His great grace displayed in Jerusalem those many years ago. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.